Well, good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? This right here is a very important book in my life. This is a 1995 Hobby Middle School yearbook. You guys remember middle school, right? The glory days? Yeah, right. But that's a very important book to me. This one is extremely important as well. This is a 1995 Hobby Middle School yearbook. And before you start judging me about the fact that I have two of the same yearbook, let me explain. The second one is my wife's yearbook, Victoria. See, I met Victoria actually in third grade on bus 84, (laughs) true story, on the way to Lock Hill Elementary. And when I saw Victoria there in that bus as a third grader, it was love at first sight. For Victoria, it was love at first sight that did not translate until she was 26. (laughs) But what is extremely special about this yearbook is what is written inside of it. You see, Victoria was graduating from hobby. She was in eighth grade and I was in seventh grade. And she was moving on to greener pastures at Clark High School. And that seemed like a world away. And so my time with her was up. And this prompted me to take advantage of my opportunity that I had. And I wrote her a fond farewell in her yearbook on the last day of school. And I didn't have time to dilly-dally about superficial stuff. I had to tell Victoria the things that mattered. And so I did. They are recorded right in here. Literary classics that would make Hemingway blush. (laughs) Things like, Victoria, don't forget about me. (laughs) Victoria, next year won't be the same without you. And my personal favorite, Victoria, stay away from those boys at Clark High School. (laughs) Now, for those of you who do not speak middle school, this was code for I love you and will you marry me? And marry me, she did, 14 years later. Like I said, this is a very special yearbook. You see, something happens when we come to the end of an era or the end of a relationship, or certainly the end of a life. Small talk tends to disappear, right? And we tend to focus on the things that we most desperately want to communicate. The things we most desperately want to impart to that person before that chance is no longer available to us. We're going to look at an amazing passage of Scripture this morning where we find the Apostle Paul in this very position. The end is coming, and Paul knows it. He is about to die, and Paul knows it. There is no time for small talk. This is it for Paul, and he's got to make it count. So please open up with me to your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4 as we look at the first eight verses of the last inspired chapter of the last inspired letter that the Apostle Paul ever wrote. Now as you're turning there, let me give you a little context for what's going on here. 
Paul is in prison near Rome, and as I said, he is awaiting his death. As a matter of fact, most historians believe that he died within months or even weeks of writing this letter. Timothy, who is his beloved disciple, is basically functioning as the senior pastor in the church in Ephesus at this time, which was one of Paul's church plants on an earlier missionary journey by him. And Ephesus was not an easy place to do ministry. And concern for his beloved Timothy, as well as the knowledge that the end of his life was coming, Paul writes Timothy for the last time, exhorting him to be faithful and persevere in the midst of persecution and suffering. To be faithful and persevere in the proclamation and the preaching of God's word. And ultimately, Paul exhorts Timothy to be faithful and to fulfill his ministry. That is a phrase I want us to think about this morning because that's going to get to the heart of what we're going to talk about. And what does it mean to fulfill your ministry? What does it mean for you individually? What does it mean for us corporately here at Wayside Chapel to fulfill our ministry? The passage this morning breaks down into basically three sections that all start with a C. Preachers love alliteration, especially when it actually makes sense with the passage. And this time it does. Verse 1 is going to be the charge. Verse 1 is the charge. Verses 2 through 5 are the challenges associated with the charge. And then verses 6 through 8 are the crown to come. It's the crown to come. So let's start in verse 1 with the charge. Paul writes, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Listen to that verse. This is about as serious a statement as someone can make. Paul references God the Father. He references Christ Jesus. He references judgment. He references the second coming. And he references the future kingdom in one verse and one charge. Paul means business. What he's about to say is of utmost importance and it could not be any clearer. It's as if Paul is reaching from that prison cell in Rome all the way to Ephesus and grabbing his disciple Timothy on the shoulders, looking him in the eye and saying, Timothy, listen to me. Listen to me, Timothy. This is important. So what does Paul want to tell Timothy as well as us here this morning? What is so important that Paul begins this chapter with such an intense opening charge. Verses 2 through 5 give us the answer as they present the challenges associated with the charge. And you can break it down in a few different ways, but we're going to look at the five main challenges that Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, gives to Timothy in Ephesus. And as we look at these, don't be tempted to think because your name may not be Timothy, or you're certainly not a first century pastor in Ephesus, That these challenges don't apply to you. Because all the challenges we're going to look at that Paul gives Timothy are things that we as a priesthood of believers are all exhorted and commanded to do throughout the New Testament. This charge is specific to Timothy, but it is a charge that applies to us. These challenges are challenges that are specific to Timothy's situation, but they are challenges that are specific to our situation. And the crown that awaits Paul is the same crown that awaits all of us who love his appearing. 
The first challenge is found in verses 2 through 4. And it is, Timothy, preach the word. Preach the word. Let's look at verse 2. Paul writes, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. The first thing Paul exhorts Timothy to do is to be faithful in his preaching of the word. Preach it no matter when. Preach it no matter where. Preach it no matter what. Now, a lot of us hear the word preaching or hear the word preach and they go, yeah, I know that. Preaching is something that a preacher does on Sunday mornings behind a pulpit. But the word here for preaching is keruso. Keruso. And it means to proclaim aloud and publicly. To proclaim the word of God. To proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ both aloud and publicly. Now clearly preaching the word will not look the same for everyone here. Not everyone will preach in a context like this where they have 45 minutes to exegete a passage on a Sunday morning. But we are all charged with the public proclamation of God's truth. Now we don't need to go around beating people with our Bibles, but we are to be bold enough to communicate who we are, what we believe, and why we believe it, and do so with great wisdom, love, and humility. Preach the word. Proclaim it. In season and out of season. And speaking of out of season, look at verses 3 and 4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths." You see, unfortunately, false gospels and false doctrine is not just a 21st century problem. It was a problem then. It's a problem then, it was a problem then, and it's a problem in the church today. This very morning, across our country, and even across the world, many churches are coming together where the person standing behind the pulpit is preaching out of a Bible that he doesn't really believe to be true, about a Savior that he doesn't really know, Celebrating a resurrection that he doesn't really believe even happened. And that's the preacher behind the pulpit, much less the person in the pew. We must preach the word. From the pulpit to the pew, we must preach the word, the inspired word of God that points to the living word of God, which is Jesus Christ. Preach the word, Timothy. Number two, the second challenge, be sober. Look at verse five, be sober. But you, be sober in all things. Now, what does it mean to be sober in all things? I mean, we typically associate sobriety or being sober with not being drunk. And yet Paul uses the term figuratively here in the sense of being free from every form of mental, emotional, or spiritual drunkenness. The idea here is one of self-control. Self-control. Not being governed by our emotions or our circumstances, but rather being controlled by the Spirit of God as we trust in the one who is sovereign over our circumstances. Paul is basically telling Timothy, those folks who want their ears tickled, 
You know those guys, those folks who are willing to distort the truth for personal gain? That's not you, Timothy. That's not you. That's not who you are, and that's not who you're going to be. Don't get, dries on the, don't get drunk on the lies of false doctrine. You stand firm. You be sober in all things, Timothy. Now, the challenge of being sober in all things makes even more sense when connected to the third challenge Paul gives Timothy. The challenge to endure hardship. Endure hardship. The need to endure hardship is a theme that is consistent throughout the letter of 2 Timothy. All the way from the opening chapter. If you look at starting in verse 7, Paul is basically in chapter 1 giving Timothy like a pep talk. And he gets to verse 7 and he, and he writes these words. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of fear, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. A few verses later in verse 12, Paul writes, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Wayside, let's be honest with one another. Most of us do not get excited at the prospect of suffering. We do not wake up in the morning, get on the computer, and search Craigslist for opportunities to suffer. We don't go walking down the street looking for that perfect rusty nail to step on. So that we can suffer and then say, God, I praise you in the midst of my suffering. A desire to suffer needlessly is unhealthy and destructive. But a willingness to suffer for the gospel, that, my friends, is a mark of a disciple. It's the mark of a disciple. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, there in the Beatitudes, verse 11 and 12. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. A few chapters later, in chapter 17, Jesus utters these famous words to his disciples. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Suffer with me, Timothy. Join me in suffering for the gospel, Timothy. Don't be ashamed of the gospel or of me, Timothy. How can Paul have such an attitude towards suffering? How can he have such an attitude? I think the answer is found in the verse we just read a minute ago in chapter 1, verse 12, when Paul wrote, I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what we have entrusted to him until that day. And he writes those words in a dark, cold prison cell waiting for execution. What an incredible theology of suffering that Paul gives us that we all can be encouraged by. Preach the word. 
Be sober. Endure hardship. And number four, do the work of an evangelist. Do the work of an evangelist. Very interesting wording by Paul here. Notice he does not say, Timothy, go be an evangelist. He says, Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. For all we know, Timothy may not have been much of an evangelist. If you look at chapter 1, it seems to paint Timothy as being somewhat shy, reserved, even timid. Those don't sound like the marks of a classically great evangelist. And yet Paul tells Timothy, you do the work of an evangelist. Far too many of us fail to do the work of an evangelist because we feel that we don't have the gift of evangelism. The problem is that excuse doesn't jive with Scripture. When Jesus said, go make disciples, he wasn't just picturing a few people uniquely gifted with the gift of evangelism. But he was speaking to all Christians of all eras who happen to have the gift of the Holy Spirit residing in them. I love how one commentator described the early church and their heart to do the work of an evangelist. He writes, it was axiomatic that every Christian was called on to be a witness to Christ, not only by life, but by lip. Isn't that awesome? Not only by life, but by lip. Every disciple. What a challenge for us. What a challenge for me. Incredibly humbling. We are to be a witness with our lives and our lips, not just a select few, but all of us who call ourselves Christians. The final challenge that Paul gives Timothy is really the one that encompasses all the others. It's really kind of the the central theme here, and it's one of the main themes of the entire letter of 2 Timothy. Paul tells Timothy, fulfill your ministry. Fulfill your ministry. When I was 16 years old, um, the gospel really penetrated my heart. I grew up in the church, but it all came together for me when I was 16, the summer after my sophomore year in high school at Frontier Ranch, a young life camp in Colorado. And I remember coming home on the bus and getting home, and I I, I remember it clearly. And I know I'm a little odd like this, but I remember thinking, there's only three things I want to do in my life. I was 16 years old, and I knew this crystal clear. I said, there's three things I want to do. I want to teach, I want to preach, and I want to coach. I want to teach, I want to preach, and I want to coach. And I've never really thought about doing anything else. And, it, and when I graduated from college at Texas A&M University, whoop, and began, <laughs> and began teaching and coaching, I was blown away by how much I enjoyed it. The guy that hired me, actually Coach Padrone, sitting right here in front of me. I, I, I loved it. And I really planned on doing it my entire life. But God had other plans for me. And after seven years, he brought me here to Wayside. That being said, I want to be really clear about something with y'all this morning. Extremely clear. Ministry did not begin for me when I came on staff at Wayside. Vocational ministry began for me when I came on staff at Wayside. I was absolutely doing ministry during my seven years of coaching and teaching, and I absolutely looked at it that way. No question. I got the privilege of teaching and coaching around 2,000 students during my seven years at O'Connor High School. Many of those students having no real concept of the gospel or who God is. 
And yet I was able to share Jesus with them because of my relationship with them that stemmed from having them in the classroom and being on the field with them. That, my friends, is ministry. And far too many of us have bought into the lie that ministry is something done by professionals on Sundays in church buildings. As we think about what it means to fulfill our ministry, we need to be reminded that ministry is not just something done at a church, but rather something done by the church. Ministry is not confined to a church building, but rather created by the church body as they are empowered by the Holy Spirit. How is it that God has gifted each one of you? Where is it that God has placed you? Who is it that God has put before you? And what is it that God has pierced your heart about? What is it that stimulates you? What is it that stirs your affections for God? Answer these questions, and I trust the Holy Spirit will give you a better idea what it means for you to fulfill your ministry right now. Preach the word, Timothy. Preach the word, Wayside. Be sober in all things, Timothy. Be sober in all things, wayside. Endure hardship, Timothy. Endure hardship, wayside. Do the work of an evangelist, Timothy. Do the work of an evangelist, wayside. Fulfill your ministry, Timothy. Fulfill your ministry, wayside. Now, before we move on and finish the passage, I want to share one more thing about these challenges. These challenges we just spoke upon are not meant to burden you. They're not meant to burden you. I know sometimes it's easy to come to church or come to any kind of spiritual gathering with Christians and leave feeling like you're the worst Christian in the world. Like you have flunked Christianity 101. Other people seem to know more about the Bible. Other people seem to serve more. They're more gifted. Other people evangelize better than you do. Other people seem to have it all together. Other people's kids seem to have it all together. By the way, they don't. Nobody does. Not me, not you. You go grab a cup of coffee at Hebrews just to get away from the clutter, and you hear two guys over there talking about how they did prison ministry fed the homeless, and memorized the book of Leviticus before they came to church this morning. (laughs) And it can feel like you're getting beat over the head with a spiritual sledgehammer. And the last thing I want to do this morning is add burdens to your life and rob you of your joy in the Lord. That being said, I think the key to having a healthy view of these challenges is found in 1 John 5.3, when he writes these beautiful words. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not burdensome. Incredible truth here, brothers and sisters. God's commands are demanding, but they are not burdensome. His demands are ultimately designed to bring true delight 
And the difference between a demand and a delight is significant. It's significant. Demands are things I have to do, but I delight in the things that I want to do and the things that we were created to do. Psalm 40, verse 8. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I delight to do your will, O God. You see, Scripture demands that I preach the word, but I delight in it because this word that points to the living word has given me life and set me free. God demands that I be sober in all things, but it is my delight to be self-controlled and place my trust in the sovereignty of God and his goodness rather than circumstances or substances. I am demanded the difficult task of enduring hardship, But it is my delight that the God of the universe who suffered for us would consider me worthy of his sufferings. It is a demand that I do the work of the evangelist. But it is my delight to share the good news of Jesus Christ with those who are slaves to sin and are captive to a world that brings death. I am demanded to fulfill my ministry, but it is my delight that I get to use whatever gifts God has given me and whatever position God has placed me in, to bring him praise. God certainly demands these things, but Lord help us if we don't see the the delight that they bring each one of us as children of God. And as Paul demands Timothy to fulfill his ministry, he does so knowing that his time of ministry is coming to a close. Look at verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. As Paul contemplates the end of his life, he uses two metaphors to describe his impending death. The pouring out of a drink offering and a ship lifting its anchor, heading home. You know, I think of Timothy. We sometimes forget that these are real people with real emotions and real struggles and real challenges and real life situations. And when I read that verse, I think of Timothy receiving those words and how emotional it must have been to read that and to know that your mentor, your spiritual father, was about to die. I'm sure there were a lot of tears on that original manuscript that Timothy received. As Paul finishes up his final letter, he looks back at his life and he's filled with something I think we all desire. Satisfaction. Satisfaction. Look at verse 7. Paul writes, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. He had given it his all. And as he sat there in that cold, dingy, smelly, dark cell awaiting the end of his life, Paul experiences something so profound. He experiences contentment. Contentment. And what about us here today, Wayside? What is our departure going to look like? What will be our emotion when the anchor is raised on our life? Now, I don't know about you, But it's hard when someone tells me to compare myself to the Apostle Paul. 
I mean, that's not a fair fight. He wrote 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. I write in middle school yearbooks. He's the greatest Christian missionary of all time. He's a church planning extraordinaire. He's a martyr. He's the Apostle Paul. And yet, may I remind you that the Paul who penned these very words is the same Paul who persecuted the early church and watched with approval as Christians were killed. Paul was not without sin, nor was Paul saved because of his great missionary exploits. Paul was saved the very same way each one of us in here who are children of God were saved, and that is by the blood of Jesus Christ. Friends, as you look at verse 7 there in your Bible, I'm going to read it again. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. I understand that very well may not be the story of your life. You may have run from God and wrecked your life. And the only fight you have fought has been with God. And it's been far from good. I also understand for many of us here, verse 7 may not be indicative of your present. You started the course of faith. But somewhere along the way, you wandered off the path. And as you sit here this morning, you feel like such a failure before God. Brothers and sisters, verse 7 may not reflect your past. And it may not be indicative of your present. But what comes next in verse 8 most assuredly can be your future. Most assuredly be your future. Let's look at verse 8. In the future... There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do you hear that? The crown of righteousness that the Lord awards is not only for Paul and the other super saints, but rather to all who have loved his appearing. As Paul uses the word appearing here, he is alluding to the second coming. The future day when Christ returns. But may I tell you, not only will Jesus appear, he did appear in the flesh 2,000 years ago. And John tells us why in 1 John 3, 5. John writes, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him, there is no sin. And in him, there is no sin. Jesus was able to take away sin because he is the only one in whom there is no sin. He is our perfect substitute. And the one who paid the penalty of death that was meant for us. Now how was this done? You ever think about that? How can a sinner like me be made righteous before God? How does that even happen? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.21 gives us quite a clue, doesn't it? It says, He made him who knew no sin... 
to be sin on our behalf. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might be the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Now I know many of us know this, but we need to be reminded of it. Salvation is not based on you cleaning up your life. It is not based on you having it all together. It's not based on you having all the answers to every Bible trivia question. It is not even based on how well you do the five challenges that we went through this morning, even though those are incredibly important. Our salvation is based on the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, given to us, appropriated to us by faith in him. A faith that acknowledges our sin, acknowledges our inability to do anything about it through human effort, acknowledges our need for a savior, And acknowledges Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as the one who willingly went to the cross, died in our place to pay the penalty of sin, and rose again on the third day, which we celebrated last weekend. Paul tells us in Romans 10.9 that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, You will be saved. Jesus appeared 2,000 years ago. And Jesus will appear again. And this time when he appears, he will appear to judge the living and the dead. And he will establish a kingdom that will have no end. If you have never received that gift of salvation... That comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. I pray today would be your day of salvation. I pray today would be the day that you truly came to love his appearing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word We thank you that you didn't leave us without telling us who you are, who we are, what life is all about. God, more than that, we thank you for Jesus, our perfect substitute. We admit that we are broken. We admit that we need you. And we testify and proclaim that what we need is a Savior, and that Savior is the God-man, Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you for this passage this morning as we felt the emotion of the Apostle Paul as he wrote the last chapter of his life. And God, we are grateful for the testimony of him led by the Spirit. And God, we pray that we would be a people, we would be a church that would preach the word a church that would be sober in all things, a church that would endure hardship, 
a church that would do the work of an evangelist, and a church, and a church that would ultimately fulfill its ministry, all for your glory forever and ever. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks.